1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more, to subscribe, and while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your annual subscription. Now on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. He's gonna break! Bad rub! Bad rub! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. We are your hosts. Our guest today is a New York Times best-selling novelist, comic book writer, musician, former attorney, and multi-time King Cast guest who, on his last appearance on the show, cruelly forced us to watch the Firestarter remake. You may have read his work at DC Comics, Marvel, and in the pages of various Star Wars comic books, but you might also be familiar with him from his work on his creator-owned series, Eight Billion Genies and Curse Words. He's also a novelist and a creative consultant for Lucasfilm Limited, not to mention one of the founding architects of Star Wars The High Republic. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, is there anything this guest cannot do. Let's welcome Charles Soule back to the KingCast stage. Charles, how are you doing today? I am very good. Thank you for having me back. This is my third time on, which is kind of wild. Yeah, third timers club. Not mm-hmm. many of those. Yep, yep. You're, you're in uh, rarefied air. And mm-hmm. um, this one, this is this is one, you didn't come to us with this, much like you did with, with Firestarter. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, Scott learned his lesson about <laughs> letting, letting you pick your titles last time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this one's kind of special because we knew we wanted to get a Life of Chuck episode into the main feed before Mike Flanagan's movie came along. And while booking for January, I was like, we should just go ahead and knock that out now. And I wanted to bring in somebody on this particular story, because uh, it is an unusual kind of odd duck kind of a story that I think requires um, a slightly more academic eye than, say, Flula Borg might have. Um, <laughs> and and you you were you were my go to pick for this. Uh, I, I have a feeling that that you'll have really interesting things to say about this uh, very interesting story. So um, that's why that's why we're all here today. Very excited for this. Well, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the chance to come back. Uh, it I do have uh, plenty of thoughts on this. I think it was I think it's a it's a weird story. Honestly, it's, uh-huh. it's weird. It's very it's weird. weird on the page, and it's weird to think of it being in a movie form. But uh, like, I don't even know how you would do it necessarily. Like, to right? Me, um, like, which is why Mike Flanagan's doing it because that when you say how does this Stephen King thing even translate into a movie or TV medium? Mike Flanagan hears the call of the conch shell that you yeah. just put out, and he says, "I shall take up the mantle." Throwing up the Flanagan signal into the air. <laughs> yeah, um, we've. Uh, I think we can say that we've read the script, no. um, and I'll say that without without giving anything away, um, it's it's very faithful to the source material. Um, but I think he. 
very uh, very selectively expands it just here and there in little ways that you know would uh, allow for it to be a feature mm. right mm -hmm. and um he's doing really interesting things with it that i would not have expected but then <laughs> then again that's also the case with gerald's game and also the mm -hmm. case with dr sleep you know so it's it's a, a very classic mike flanagan stephen king joint in that in that respect you think that's about right, Eric? Yeah. Uh, again, without spoiling much and without like pissing off Mike for letting us read the script, uh, I think that what I can say is that where he's finding the places to expand, it's always expanding the emotion of it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and which is kind of the, the Flanagan special. It's like that's you watch Midnight Mass or, you know, Hill House, Bly Manor, any of that stuff. You know, he Mike wears his heart on his sleeve. And uh, and I think that the places that I noticed that were, you know, where he made any kind of departure was it was always in a uh, in a in an emotional way just to hammer home the kind of tragedy that's at at uh, at play here. This of this uh, this uh, man who died too young, essentially. Mm -hmm. So um but uh but all the playfulness of the story the playfulness of the structure of the story and and the order in which events are told i don't think it's uh, us talking out of school to say that that's all preserved so well, yeah. is it is it worth like telling the listeners what it is and why it's so weird at least at least to me it seems weird well yeah um, that's your job you're the guest you uh, we're gonna I make you so. tell, tell everybody so do you want to do you want to do, do that i can do that yeah. right now do, that? do it I'm do not. it right now yeah okay, right now so uh the life and, of and, Chuck well hold on and re real quick this is gonna be i want to say that if you haven't read the story and you mean to read the story this is going to get very spoilery you can't talk yes. about the story at all without kind of spoiling what the conceit of this thing is um and if you want to go in fresh if you want to see the movie fresh if you well however it is uh we are going to get very spoilery uh, uh from here on out i just wanted to give about the source what, material yeah about the source material yes 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 and and it is the 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 printed version the the prose version is is only like a 50 page novella and right. so it's mm. very quick it's very quick read um I mean, obviously the movie's the movie when that comes out, but it's, if you wanted to like hit pause and go read it and come back, you could, you could do that. Um, okay. So Life of Chuck is, is one of four novellas in a pretty recent Stephen King collection called, um, If It Bleeds, I think. Yep. Yeah, If It Bleeds. Mm -hmm. And it is, uh, set up in, in three parts, um, three sections. And I think it's act, act three, act two, act one. It goes, it, it's, it's set up purposely to go in reverse order in terms of the the sequence of the events and so act three is feels like a like an impending apocalypse situation where uh you're in this like suburban uh kind of setting and just outside a city and you've got a a teacher who's trying to get home from from work and traffic is all messed up and a sinkhole opens the internet's flickering it's on its last legs power's going out and and everybody in the town kind of seems to know and acknowledge that that the world is ending, that things are winding mm -hmm. down, that that all is falling apart. And at the same time, though, there are these weird manifestations of a what first seemed to be just like like thank you ads that that a bank put put up in various spots in the town for uh, one of their workers who's retiring for 39 great years. Thank you, Chuck Krantz, for 39 great years. And he was a bank teller at this bank, and I guess he's retiring. And then, and it strikes the people in the story that this is very weird because the world is falling apart, and yet somehow um, 
the bank decided this was the moment to to put up these these huge ads and run ads on the on the radio and the TV and all this stuff thanking Chuck Kranz for working for 39 years. And so that's basically the first story is kind of the the increasing scope of this apocalypse while you start seeing more and more and more ads for Chuck Kranz's retirement. Um, and then as things really, really start to fall apart, that ad, like the Chuck Krantz face and like the, the picture of this dude starts to be like it, it, it like it's on, in the sky. It's on, on windows. It's like on, a harbinger of doom. Yeah. yeah it's just everywhere. Yeah. And, and so then you do kind of a hard cut to a hospital room where Chuck Krantz is, is lying in bed, dying of cancer, and his his son is there, and they're sort of talking about what's going to happen. And, and Chuck is, I believe, unconscious. He's 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 done. And you you put together that what we're seeing is is the internal mind of Chuck uh, as he is dying. So all of that apocalyptic stuff was was inside his mind. It's the mind, the world inside his mind that is going out as he goes out. And the end of this first act or that, you know, this, this first chunk of the story is literally cut to black when Chuck Krantz dies. So, mm -hmm. so that's the first chunk of the story, which really kind of even works on its own as, as a short story. It's really solid. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was, I thought it was great, but then we move on to the second bit, uh, which is um, set again, pretty much present day, maybe a year or two ago. And uh, you have Chuck Krantz, who's alive at this point, and he is just walking along in, in Boston one day, and he comes across a street drummer, a guy like a kid who's, who's making, trying to make money, just playing drums on the street. And he um, randomly just starts dancing with, to, the, to the guy's beat. And uh, a crowd forms. He grabs a young woman. They start dancing. It's this incredible moment. And you get a little bit more Chuck's backstory there, suggesting that he he learned to dance from his grandmother. And this was like, he's got his job at the bank and he's an accountant and he's not the kind of person who would just randomly go dancing on a, on a given Tuesday in Boston, but he does. Um, and then that, that's sort of is all that the second interlude is about is he, he dances and then, you know, makes the kid a bunch of money and then sort of thinks about his life a little and, and goes back home. Um, and it's, it's suggested that the, the cancer that kills him, the brain tumor that's going to kill him is, is, is already growing in his mind, but he doesn't know that yet. So that's the second, the second thing completely disconnected from any of the, you know, you know, it's the same character, but it doesn't really connect to the first part. And then right. you have the, the third and final part, which goes way, way back to when he was a kid and um, he's living with his, his grandparents because his family was killed in a car accident and, and his grandparents took him in. And, you know, it's just kind of a very Stephen Kingy slice of life, 12 year old kid doing stuff kind of story and they they live in this old victorian home and the grandfather um starts sort of suggesting that there's something weird up there don't ever go up there there's something weird up there and it just you know again very typical sort of stephen king build until the point when um the kid kind of puts two and two together that that if you go up there you'll see people who visions of people who are maybe going to die and so he realizes that his grandfather saw a vision of his grandmother's death and other people in the town over the years. And after his grandfather dies, he goes up there himself and sees a vision of himself dying as, as we see in that first story, dying of cancer in the hospital bed, you yeah. know, 27 years on. So, so that's basically, am I missing anything important, anything significant? No, well, I mean, I think you, go ahead. 
Yeah, there's there's some detail, you know, there detail work in connective tissue, but obviously you hit the broad strokes and you did it extremely well and much better than I could have. I if you had had this task had gone to me, I would have rambled, be still rambling in the the second act somewhere. Um, yeah, uh, very succinctly put, and uh, and uh, it hearing you tell this actually makes me really excited to kind of like dive into all the different sections of this thing. Uh, this is a really kind of chewy story and it's one that mm-hmm. when i read if it bleeds it's the least typical stephen king story in there right so you have rat which is like a guy versus a, a rat you know you know it's kind of story you have uh, a holly gibney story that's like an extension of the outsider mm-hmm. um which is the title story if it bleeds uh, and then you have mr harrigan's phone which was adapted by netflix and one i'm embarrassed to say i still haven't seen it's it's a stephen king adaptation that's come out since we've done the show but it seems so fucking milk toast <laughs> i I've, I've started it like two or three times and i get so bored and I, I i like go off and do other things so i didn't even i didn't even attempt it yeah um but the story itself uh mr harrigan's phone is very like tales from the cryptish and mm-hmm. you know uh w- you know which is fun but then you have life of chuck in here and i remember when i read the story i was i was like oh that's that's odd you know I, i'm not sure what i think of this thing but out of all four stories that's the one that i've kept thinking about so yeah. that's the one that keep my mind there's flashes of it and there's flashes in uh, in the writing that are legitimately the scariest thing in that entire novella collection like the the imagery of chuck's grinning face like this kind of average guy banker guy staring at you from all these windows you know of, of these houses as the lights are going out but this like after image of the staring face like it gets really fucking creepy and uh uh, I don't know why that like uh, uh, why that stuck with me more than anything else, but um, but uh, you know I think ultimately it's it's just really fun to s- see Stephen King playing with structure in this way. You know, this is somebody who could easily just rest on his laurels, and and you know there's something about this that I think you know really grabbed him, and and you know I find it very fresh and inventive. So. So it's one of my favorites of, of recent times, and I'm I'm uh, uh, really glad that that uh, Flanagan's taking a stab at it because I think that uh, if you know if he does his job right, it's going to be something maybe not everybody will love, but it's certainly something that I'll fucking you know love if he if he nails this. You know what's interesting is I read this when if it bleeds came out, and yeah. it didn't it didn't bounce off of me. I just m- 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 the majority of my reaction was well that was strange, <laughs> like like I get it, but that was a a weird way to go about doing this and you know but but like you it was it i kept picking at that scab in my uh-huh. in my brain of of chuck like it's it's real chewy this thing as i yeah. as i like to say um and mm-hmm. but i i didn't i didn't feel the emotion of it the first time i read it mm. right and then um because you're trying to figure it out right that's the maybe what's going that's on what here it was and, yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe that's you're in fact you're probably right it's probably that but it didn't really hit me and then after we read what mike had done with it i i got emotional reading the script and i i cried at the end of the script and then Mm. which rarely fucking happens with me um and so then i went back and read the short story again i was like nope that was all in there i was just you know what the i don't know what the fuck was wrong with me on that (laughs) particular day that i read it but it didn't it didn't really fully sink its claws into me emotionally uh mm. on that on that first read and i was gonna i was gonna say like i have no idea what that's about but you're probably right it was a matter of like trying to understand the mechanics of it and 
that the strangeness yeah. of it sort of overshadowing everything right. else. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, this is, this is a, a it, it's a, it's a layer cake, right. And there's, you know, you, whenever you encounter something for the first time, you're, you're, you know, you're mostly thinking about the frosting and then it's, you kind of get, get into it. Right. What's actually happening here is um, I think is, is really, really fascinating in part because I think, you know, whenever I, whenever I do one of these or, or talk to um, other people about their work, like a big, a big part of what I like to do is unpack what, what I think the, the author, the creator was doing and whether they knew it or not when they were making the story. And, you know, for me, a big key to this, to this story is, is the, um, is the Walt Whitman poem that is, uh, that is cited the I am large, I contain multitudes, yep. which is, um, you know, song of myself. It's a very, very super, super famous Walt Whitman poem. And the point of act three to me is, is just meditating on the idea that we all contain many, many worlds within us, many people, yes. many memories, many lives, entire universes. And if you're Stephen King, I mean, fuck you, you contain more than most and much <laughs> more fully realized than most. Like think of the, think of the things that exist in his head and, and he's, you know, he's, he's hopefully going to be around for another many, many years to come, but he's, you know, he's in the, in the phase of life where people start to think about what's going to happen. And this feels like him, him kicking around the idea of what's going to happen to all those people in my head. You know, we're like, mm. I made those worlds up and he's, he's so good at evoking entire backgrounds and entire like narratives with like a single detail. And like in this story, he talks, there's a woman, a 22, 22 year old woman who gets, broken up with like that day and she's all like pissed off about it and you get the whole the whole girl's life from like three lines it's unreal mm -hmm. and so there's stuff like that that he's just done for decades and and i think he's, he's just you know what happens to all that where does it go it's um it's kind of like you know uh this is his like langoliers sort of you know, uh, cosmic infrastructure kind of story that he does like thinking of what what happens between the moments and uh i think that is is fascinating, but it's only the first chunk, right? The other two chunks are about completely different things, which is why this story has a lot going on. It's great. But the, but the other two chunks will then kind of feed back. It's like an Ouroboros, right? It kind of feeds yeah. back into that very first one because, uh, you know, they make mention in the, the novella how like a teacher that, uh, that he meets in our last act, but act one, uh, you know, it, is essentially the you know the, the the teacher that was in his mind at the beginning of, of the story right so it's like yeah. you have you have these these things where all these people that he's meeting are kind of feeding into this universe that you've already experienced and that i have to imagine people who have no idea what the story is if they go and see this movie or you know i have no idea i think it's an indie, indie movie so it could be theatrical it could be, sell to a streamer i have no idea what what's going to happen with it but but I'm actually really excited for people. I would love to be in an audience with uh, people who have no idea what this is. Cause the first 15, 20 minutes is going to be a disaster movie, right? It's going to yeah, be like a melancholic, yeah. at, you know, end of the world uh, movie as, as everybody's kind of dealing with that. And then it switches gears into something that's extremely joyful, which is the, that dance sequence. Um, um, and then, you know, just to hear that, that transition and the whiplash that people are gonna, you know, have there. Cause they, I don't know, it, it's, there's something really exciting about, uh, it's in the same way that I the thing that, uh, I think Scott and I both share this were of that age where we saw Pulp Fiction at a, at a mm -hmm. young, you know, at the, like a pivotal moment for us and the way that Tarantino fucks with structure, but how everything ties together at the end, uh, in, in, 
I think Chuck stands a chance of having that same kind of structural impact on people. I don't know if it's going to be as good as Pulp Fiction, you know, ultimately, you know, I don't think it's going to be as broad appealing as Pulp Fiction, but just in the way that, that everything has a thematic and character bow on it um, with this story, you know, the, the way that it feeds back and the end feeds back into the beginning and, uh, and all that. It's, it's, if, yeah. if he nails the dance sequence, that's almost all you need. Like there right. are so many movies that like, I only kind of remember the dance sequence, like 500 days of summer, you know, like right. there's that weird, like there's, there's the a musical. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like there's just, I mean, I think a, a really well done dance sequence. You, I mean, almost name it is, is like the end of Slumdog Millionaire, which is not a movie with dance sequences that ends with that big Bollywood number. Like they just, they just, it's a joyful thing, as you said. Right. And so if that works, then the whole thing, on some level, the whole thing will probably, right. people will enjoy the experience, I would yeah. guess. Well, I'd like to like also underline that this isn't like uh, where everybody starts doing choreographed dances. This is, you know, grounded in reality, but it's a guy that you come to, you realize as a kid, like he was, he discovered he would dance with his grandmother and that's like thing that they bonded over and she taught him how to dance. And he fucking, uh, as a kid just had, was a natural at it. And so like at school dances, he dances like, it was like his happiest. He was at his happiest when he danced. Right. So the, uh, but then he grew up and like most people, you know, uh, say you loved drawing when you were a kid, but you grew up and you became a, you know, a doctor or an engineer or whatever the hell you become, you know, uh, and you kind of left that behind, but then you have that moment. And that's what the dance sequence for adult Chuck is, is that moment of reliving and remembering that pure joy of dancing. So when he, when he has that thing, it's like he stops in the middle of like a mundane day, um, and is caught by the beat. And for whatever reason, like he feeds out, he and the drummer feed off each other. And, uh, and it's like the, in the context of everything, it becomes his last great, pure, um, uh, happy moment before the weight of his, you know, his diagnosis comes in before, you know, before he has to go back to, you know, to his everyday life, you know? Um, you know what? So I just wanted to make sure people didn't think it's like, oh, and then here's this like fantasy dance number. It's like, no, he just dances and just the he's good at it. And people like the crowd responds to people just having legitimate joy and like, oh, my God, this guy's good at it. And he's just it's fun to watch. And, you know, the the joy is infectious, you know, that, that he has. It's it's a it's a remarkably uh, great sequence within within the novella. And uh, um I think it's safe to say, Scott, that that's we were there for some of the dance stuff, and and uh, I think Mike uh, Mike might have uh, might have pulled it off. We'll see what it looks like when it cut, cuts together. But what we saw was was pretty pretty great. So well, it's Tom Hiddleston, right? Plays Chuck. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then who who plays the his dance partner? Mm, mm. I don't know. If we can say that. I'm sure it'll be great. Like you know, I uh, I would imagine uh, she wasn't. Neither one of them was cast if they couldn't dance. I think Hiddleston. Like, I don't know, if, like, he doesn't he have a background where there's some, like, theater in there, like, dancing? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a big theater guy, yeah. Yeah, he, <laughs> I, I think people will be impressed. Um, yeah. he, he, it's. We'll have a lot more to say yeah. on this whenever, whenever the movie <laughs> yeah. comes out. For I'm sure, but, I'm uh, very but nervous we were happy. About saying the wrong thing. Yeah, 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 we, yeah, we were happy. All right. Um, um, just very nervous about, you know, I don't want to get, make yeah, my, blow it, of course. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I, and I won't, I won't, put, I'm, I'm super curious, but I won't push. Mm. I'll make you guys tell me in private later. Um, I think, but, I think the uphill battle that the film is going to have is the same 
battle that I would imagine the short story had with some people in that it is like, this is absolutely not going to be, this isn't a story you can just kind of scan your way through. Right. You've got to read between the lines on it. And at certain points, the story even tells you explicitly what it's about. But I don't think that means that everyone is going to understand it. Mm. You know, I'm not saying that this is so what's the word? So highfalutin or so like, you know, uh, intricate or it's not a puzzle really to be unlocked. But given uh, media literacy these days, I'm expecting uh, I'm expecting that to be an issue here. And to support my my theory on this, um, I went looking for. I was wondering if anyone had written anything about Life of Chuck online. I read that too. That script guy. Is yes, that the one you script about? shadows. Oh my god! Of I the shorts, not of the not it. of the Flanagan script, mind you, of the short yeah, story. Of the short story. I couldn't believe it. Go be, be my guest. Have <laughs> you have you have you read it, Vespi? No, this is the first time hearing of it. Okay, let me let me read you some selections. <laughs> it's from, wild. Uh, this is you know I'm picking up like midway through after. And you said this is script shadow that did this, right? Yeah, you remember? Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> like early days of the internet, script shadow. Yep. Um. I'm not exaggerating when I say this may be the worst short story I've ever read. It's bizarre because you pick up a Stephen King story and you expect to be A, entertained, and B, learn something about the craft. A, I was the opposite of entertained. What I went through could better be categorized as torture. And B, the only thing I learned is that Stephen King doesn't care about writing good stories anymore. The first act of this story starts off well. The internet is barely working. There's word that California is falling into the ocean. End of the world scenarios are movie catnip. We moviegoers love them. I love them. So I was intrigued to see where this was going. Then King leans heavily into basically a PSA about the environment. It was as if the story stopped and King, the activist, transported himself in. I remember back when King used to talk about theme in writing. He would write the best story possible then. While rewriting it, he'd search for a theme and place more emphasis on it. These days, he seems to be starting with the theme. So is there a theme or is there not? Uh, His stuff just doesn't nearly work nearly as well with that approach. Um, the second act is about a middle-aged man, aged man dancing. That's it. That's what 50 pages are about. A man, Chuck is walking to work, happens to spot a drummer, starts dancing, is joined by a random younger woman and they dance while everyone cheers. That's the whole second act. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, Hmm. this is, this is someone that people like listen to online. Like somebody that love it or not, like has a platform. Yeah. I think the average person is fucking around on their phone while they're usually watching a movie. Or someone who doesn't take the time while, like, this person clearly did not absorb what the story told them at all. Missed the point entirely. Straight over his fucking head. So I think that's going to be the... I don't think there's going to be any issues with the the quality of an adaptation of this. I think there will be issues with the audience uh, being... uh, literate enough Hmm. in terms of media to absorb what the thing is telling them and why it has this emotional weight. It could could be, but I I feel like with a movie though, especially with Tom famous, Tom Hiddleston as the face of Chuck, it's a little bit different to read about Chuck Chuck's face on a billboard than to see Tom Hiddleston's face on the billboard. And then, then see Tom Hiddleston dance in the middle of the thing. You know, there's going to be something, a visual connective tissue that, 
that maybe script shadow will then understand, you know, when he's watching going, Oh, I, I guess I skipped the part about him dying and, and the whole, I contain multitudes things at the end makes more sense now. Like I, you know, I don't know. Um, but I think visually, you know, it, it, again, it all depends on execution, but like Mike has been very talented at visually tying past and present, uh, things together with, uh, all of his like Netflix shows and, um, you know, haunting of Hill house jumps to mind where he kept, he was telling those two parallel stories and, and they kept feeding each other and, and feeding like with visual handoffs and stuff. Um, uh, so I, I, th- I, I would trust that, that Mike has taken all that into consideration. Uh, that said, you can't fucking make the movies for the dumbest audience. It's not paying attention. You got to make it for the people who are actually paying attention. So whether or not, whether or not, uh, you know, that's a small segment of the people watching or a large segment, I couldn't tell you, but, uh, um, you know, but, but I do, I, I mean, listen, we all trust Mike in, in doing this stuff, Mm -hmm. but, uh, if people are going to be that obtuse at a certain point, it's, it's, uh, it's a, not my problem scenario for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this is not, I don't think it's very difficult to understand. Like, it's just, it's just the way that it's done in reverse is the only thing that really makes it even mildly complicated to get. If you flipped Acts 1 and 3, it would, it would just kind of roll. Um, but ultimately, like you said, you know, if, you know, Mike gets to make his movie, Stephen King got to write his story, you know, like I think about all the time when I'm doing my stuff, like really the, the, the thing is doing it. It doesn't, like you want it to find an audience, you want it to connect with people, but that's only like, it's, I don't even say that's most of it. Most of what it is for me anyway, is like telling the story, like doing it, making the thing. And then right. it's in the world and the world does whatever it wants to with it because there's always going to be script shadows. There are like, there are people who just won't get it no matter how much you think they should. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't worry about it. You just have to like shine, sort of sail to your own compass point always. And I'm sure. Yeah, right. But, but I get where you're coming from, Scott, because we, we're still, we are, about to be seven years past the release of the last Jedi. And we still have people to this day that don't understand the, the different points of view in the flashback scene where Luke is confronting Kylo, right? Everybody like people will just dig in their heels at a certain point and refuse to understand that, you know, that any kind of nuance in a, in a story, you know? And, uh, uh, so there, there are, there, you're probably right. There are going to be people who don't get it and they're just going to lock into not getting it uh, because they don't want to ever come across. They don't want to ever say something and then, then have to feel like that they got it wrong and feel stupid about right. it. So, right. so you're, you're probably not wrong in that, in that aspect, you know, and, but you know, uh, you know, if, if we catered to those folks and all we would be getting are, are transformers movies, you know? So, yeah. No. Um, but is it worth like I, the, the end of the end of the story, right. Uh, which is, which is the, one of the earlier things that happens in, in the story chronologically right. is, is, you know, this whole haunted house sequence where he's living in the house with his grandparents, where apparently there's an attic that you can see visions of people. Yeah. Dying. The haunted cupola. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And he, he sees himself. And so, and none of the other ones that we that that are mentioned or referenced within that chunk of the story suggest you people saw themselves. They only saw other people, yeah, you know, people they knew or people in the neighborhood, whatever. And so Chuck sees himself, and that is an element that I thought was really interesting, because in a typical story, like the way you know the the sort of tropey way of doing that is, oh, I I realized I saw a vision. I know I'm going to die at. at 39 years old. So I'm going to do everything I can to pack every possible minute of my life between now and then with travel and joy and adventure and like 
you know, whatever craziness I, I can think of. And Chuck does like almost affirmatively the opposite. Like he, he's an, he becomes an accountant and lives what seems to be a very quiet, straightforward life has, I think maybe two kids, maybe just one, you know, has a, has a wife that he marries and loves and then he gets sick and he dances once and then he's gone. And it's a really, that in, in some ways is, is the most interesting choice of the thing to me that, that it's taking that trope or that tradition of the way that that story is normally told and really changing it. And, and I think, again, the key is the, I am large, I contain multitudes because it's at least to me anyway, it's suggesting that he, he doesn't need all of the external stuff because he's already got it inside. Like he doesn't, Mm. you know, he, his life is big enough for him. Um, And when you see what his life is like inside him, it is big enough. It's a whole universe. And it's, you know, I think it's, I think that to me is what really, elevates the story to something particularly special is that it, 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 it suggests the mm. way that, that we all have that. We all are those right. things. We all have multitudes, but, um, and I don't know that I would have even thought of doing it that way or like, you know, it's, it's why it has to be told in reverse almost. Mm. Um, so anyway, what did you guys think of, of that particular element? The seeing himself die. Uh, I never like really. We're okay. talking about from the at the end, the third. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. The yeah. last thing, the thing that you find out that he knew he was going to die. Apparently, nothing. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know what I. Th- I, I don't. I. Th- how do I? Like how do a, I put let me, this? let me let me ask it a different way. Okay, in if this were like a, a normal quote unquote short story, that would be the end of the first act where the kid sees that he's going to die. He's got 39 years on earth, 27 years left. And then it's like, okay, what is this? Like, you're like, oh my God, what is he going to do with it? What is he going to do? But because of the way this story is told, you already know what he's done with it, which is kind of not much in a way. And Well, he got married. He had a kid. You okay. Know? I'm not going to say that's not much, but it, it's, it's, I th- well, well I mentioned I mentioned that because I think that's the most interesting thing about it that he had reason to believe I will not make it to forty, and he still went out and got married and had a kid. You know, he didn't do yeah. too much ambitious with his life. You know, he's you know working an office job, uh, but we see that he makes time for joy. You know, and and I'm guessing that because he is capable of still feeling joy despite knowing that he's going to have this truncated life that that probably is what led to his decision to you know get married and start a family versus thinking like being despondent over it and uh i don't know just like sitting in a room somewhere until he fucking dies you know if Mm -hmm. i if i knew like my what my expiration date was like i don't know that i would be doing what chuck does in the story you know i think it would be pretty dark how how i would react to that so i think to answer your question i think that's one of the most that element of it is the the most interesting thing about it see Mm. that that's surprising to me because when i think about what i would do if i if if i found out i was going to die at 62 on this day i would spend the next my time until then doing the things that i have like put off you know like i would go to places i haven't been i would read the books. I would connect with loved ones. I would do the things that I, I would use that time like powerfully. Of course I would do some of that, but uh, there's some of that would be limited by, by my means. Yeah. You know, I haven't traveled all over the world. I'd love to do that before I fucking died, but I don't have the money to do that or the wherewithal. Like it's, I think it's, it's more about not succumbing to the 
grief is the wrong word, but succumbing to the the finality of it and finding out that far in advance. I, I just, I don't know. I think it would really, it, it would for me, I think it would really fuck me up. Like, I don't want to know. No. Uh, yeah. And and if I did know, I can't imagine that I would respond well to it. So there might be like some, you know, really going overboard with, you know, uh, hanging out with people that I, that I love or, you know, um, finding joy where I can get it within my means. But um, I also think it would be fucking dark as shit. And I also think I would try to outwit it somehow because I'm <laughs> right. a belligerent, stubborn motherfucker so like that. Final destination it? You'd like watch for breaths of wind and all that stuff? Well, you would jump out of a plane I just realized a that wouldn't just to see I just, what would happen. Yeah. I just realized I, what I'm pitching here is the same shit I did when I was a kid and I was trying to fool God. Like I remember, <laughs> okay. I, I remember, I remember being told in Sunday school, I was an unruly Sunday school kid. Really? You know, they would tell us stuff in there that even at a young age, I was like, what? Like, you know, I, I've used, I've talked about this on the show before, I think. And I, I remember getting in trouble for like talking back about the story of Noah's Ark and just finding it very unbelievable at like, you know, 10 years old or whatever I was. But I remember even before that being in Sunday school and this I must have been like six or seven because I remember exactly where I was when I was doing this. And it was in the, the house that I uh, grew up in, the first house I grew up in. And I was walking down the street and looking at my feet and the uh, the the lines in the sidewalk between the panels of cement. Right. And I was not stepping on them. And. I was thinking about how in Sunday school, they told us that God knows everything you're going to do, you know? And so you can't like outwit God basically. Like it, like your destiny is already laid out. And I remember trying to do a thing where I'd be like, I'm not going to step on the crack. I'm not going to step on the crack. Oh, I just stepped on the crack. Did you see that coming? God, you know, and like seeing if there was any reaction, then I would think, Oh, well, no, he must've, he must've known that I was going to do that. And I was just about to do the same goddamn thing here because I was going to say, like, if I knew I was going to die at 39 at 13, I'm thinking that by the time I was in my late 20s or so, I'd be thinking about just offing myself so it would be my decision. Right. But that's what I would have seen in the couple, uh, couple not me dying in a hospital bed at 39. So that Mm -hmm. wouldn't work. I'm a fucking moron. Let's <laughs> talk to full God. Um, yeah. Or, but you don't know why you're in the hospital bed. You do that. And then you would end up in like a, uh, like a 10 year coma. And then you would finally pass, you know, know what I mean? It's like, that seems to be the, I mean, it, the, the, the whole thing boils down to the question of fate. Right. And, and we're, we're all fated to die. We're all going to die. And you could, extrapolate. I mean, listen, there, there is a, a tragedy to dying young. Of course there is, but, if you can extrapolate that out to, well, why even bother doing anything if you're just going to end up in a hospital bed dying, you know, at whatever point, at a certain point, you just live the life, even if that life on the surface might seem mundane. But I think what what's it, it's between the lines in the in the story for sure. But, you know, the the joy that he has with his family, that is his uh, I'm achieving what I need to achieve before I go. Right. It's uh, it's not it's not explicit in, in the novella for sure. But, um, you know, he, the fact that he's dying in bed and he has a you know, his wife and his son are crying and grieving, grieving it like means that he, he the relationship he had with with his family was 
you know, as deep and meaningful as, as any, you know, relationship can be, you know? So I think mm-hmm. that's, plus you oh. don't get to see the years between, you know, what's his college years like, you know, like what, what did he do in his early twenties? You know, it's like there, there's plenty of time for, for, uh, for him to have gone and done a lot of the, I'm going to go crazy and explore the world and, and do all that stuff. And then, you know, that's eventually, fair. eventually realize that, you know, like Scott said, like if, if I found out I was dying in five years, you know, five years from now, and I knew that date, you know, I would want to go do all the stuff you said, but there's a reality. I have to make money to, to go do that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so that's got to come from somewhere. You know, I'm, I'm not going to start a GoFundMe saying I had a vision that I'm going <laughs> to die. So, so please, please give me money so I can go explore the world, you know, yeah, although that I, might work. I don't I, know. I it would work. I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut that out. I'm going to fucking do that anyway. Let's see. <laughs> I'm going to give, give somebody that idea now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I suspect that if any of us actually did know, like we we knew, it would it wouldn't be a weight. It would be a weight relieved because mm-hmm. I think it's something every you always kind of thinking about it, whether you know it or not. How much time do I have left? When is it going to happen? How's it going to happen? And if you knew, it would just be one less thing to worry about, and you could actually make choices and plan around it. And you know, I wonder if that's. Again, maybe something that's that's in the subtext of the story is that Chuck's mm. life was made lighter in a way by knowing. Mm. And, and so he he, you know, danced his way through, I suppose. But it it's 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 tricky. I, I would say in the novella version, and you just gave me sort of a clue, Eric, about what I think how, how I think Flanagan might have done some adapting and tweak things. But um in the novella version, I don't recall that scene with his family being structured that way. Like, I think the kid, like his son is kind of a dick. And like, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't know. I might've missed it, but I, I think it's, it's not, it doesn't really read that way in the page, as you said. Um, but, you know, it, I could see a version where it is made explicit that like Chuck's choices have, have he decided to create love and joy for the next generation. I mean, that's, that's a life well lived for sure. Well, I mean, and there's also just something to be said, you know, it's not for being a parent isn't for everybody, but there is, you know, there is a, you know, a, an idea beyond there where you're, you're a piece of you is living beyond you. Right. And I think so much of, and this isn't explored at all in the novella and uh, at all. And I'm, you know, and I'm not even trying to coyly hint at the Flanagan thing. I don't think it's explicitly here too, but it's just me thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think that, you know, there part of the, the message of this thing is that I contain multitudes and that within every single person, you know, that there's a, a billion other, you know, lives and lifetimes and experiences that, you know, that have all coalesced into this one individual being, you know, considering how vast the universe is and how much of a miracle life itself is, you know, and what we can see in the, in, in the knowable universe, you know, how earth is really the only thing that, that has uh, had the perfect combination of, of elements to sustain life as we know it. And, you know, and we, in, in our DNA, we bring, you know, we, we bring everything that our parents gave us and their parents and their parents and their parents. And, you know, all this stuff is, is all coalesced into one individual and that individual could be a fucking piece of shit that treats people bad at seven 11, or it could be, you know, fucking, you know, a Pope who knows, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, uh, you know, so I don't know. I think part of the idea is that it, it's not just about you. It's about the lives that uh, impact you because everybody that impacts Chuck and, you know, that ends up in his little mind space or whatever 
Chuck has impacted all those people that watched him dance and took out their phones and were like shared it around mm-hmm. and shared it to their, their friends. Like, look at this bit of joy. So, you know, just drawing it out, you can say that, you know, Chuck himself probably exists in somebody's, you know, multitude, I contain multitudes, you know, thing. And some, if we went into somebody else's head, you know, there's there. So I don't know, part having the kid and, you know, having the family and, and having that impact on and having love and, and support for the time that you're there. You know, I don't know. I think it all it's its all more of a celebration of humanity and life uh, in a way that uh, uh, that I don't think people might necessarily get on first blush. You know, well, you know, I don't think Stephen King necessarily got on a first blush either, because if you did, you look at the author's note at the um, where he talks about the story a little bit. Um, What's he saying? I'm, he I'm, says, I must have, but I don't remember. Yeah, he says that he wrote the first two chunks of it so act three and act two so the the apocalypse thing and the dance thing yeah um and and he just he he came up with the idea of he just was struck by the idea of a you know like good job chuck thanks for 39 years and then he built that whole little episode around it uh the idea you know that the chuck's world is dying as he dies yeah um and then he he just was like i guess walking through boston and 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 saw a drummer was like you know it'd be cool some some little oh yeah i remember reading that yeah right but then he says I had these two things and then I had, I didn't even write the third part until like a year later when I felt mm-hmm. like I needed something to put them both together. Right. And, and that to me is, um, is, is fascinating because I think it, it speaks to how, how kind of how good he, how frustratingly good he is. <laughs> right. Um, because it, it's, man, I mean, you know, I do this, I do this for a living. I don't do it as well as he does. Uh, but you know, like these things, they don't, they kind of don't work. And then if you dig under the surface a little bit, it's like, holy shit, this is a beautiful thing that all three of us seem to be getting slightly different things, but we're all finding very meaningful. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's good shit. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's what I consider his like, you know, his late stage. Um, like you guys, you did an episode on Holly. You read Holly, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Holly is another great example of how he's able to just do these tiny little beats that, that again, you know, like they contain multitudes. He's, he's just just such an artist these days in a way that he always was, but more so now. Like, I think it's, um, it's just been incredible to watch his evolution from, from, you know, Carrie, which is, you know, no slouch to, to things like this. It's, uh, just a totally different ball game. And there's like, I would like to think when I am an older writer, I will be able to, I'll just sort of throw stuff like this out and then be like, I don't know what I was doing, but I just put some shit together and here you go. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, the soul cast goes on about it for an hour, but um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see. But it's, I, I'm really, I was really, I did not expect to be as impressed with this as I was on a second read. I listened to it the first time, which might've been a factor mm. um, because you don't, you know, you don't get the details in the same when you're when you're listening to something as you do when you're you can like reread passages and things when you're looking yeah. at the page. But uh, yeah, it really kind of it really it really uh, I thought it was just awesome. I don't know, I was really impressed with it. Do y'all have a preferred section of this story? Hmm. From the yeah, definitely from the novella. The uh, I mean, the opening is is such a great hook. Yeah. Um. And you know, kind of to what Script Shadow, you know, not not to give give him any <laughs> praise because he totally missed missed uh, the point of everything. But you know, he's not wrong in that it's this instantly intriguing world because uh, w- what's great about it is it isn't like 
you open and it's Mad Max and everybody's fighting for water. It's like, no, that's not it, This is very realistic kind of in how the world's going to fall apart where people are like, well, what the fuck can you do about it? Like, I'm just not going to show up for work, I guess. I'm going to sit and watch the sunrise. It's like, there's what, what are you going to do in, in, in this time? You're just going to be like kind of pissed off that your Netflix isn't coming on, you know, you know, as dependably as it was before, you know, it's like, you know, you're going to sit there. There's a, a feeling of, of uh, it's everything's out of my control. What, you know, and I don't know what to do. Kind of this uh, feeling that I think is probably way more realistic. If uh, you know, if, if mother nature decides to take the planet back from humanity, you mm-hmm. know, I think it's probably going to be more in this vein where it's going to be, it won't be one giant event that takes out everybody. It's going to be these little, little pieces and row of dominoes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah. and so there, there's something like really intriguing about that as, um, uh, you know, as an approach to telling a kind of the world is, is ending story. And uh, that's certainly the thing that I think about first um, when I think about the novella for sure. Yeah, there's a, I think I, I think I'm the same. I mean, I love a good, you know, music, music sequence written, like it's really hard to write music well in prose because you obviously, you can't hear it. Right. And so trying to, to do it and make it work is hard. Writing about dancing is really hard. Uh, and, and, you know, he does a good job of, of establishing the way the drummer feels and, and all of it. Like it's very, it's great work, but the thing that really stuck with me was that idea that every time everyone dies, it's an apocalypse. And, and so I think it is that first one. Um, and I liked, I liked the way he chose to position the apocalypse. Like this is like two months down the road from this point is when it would be water wars and all that shit, like resources. But here people still kind of like, there's still food in the fridge and like you can, the lights are on sometimes and it's not quite that bad. Mm -hmm. Um, there's an author. You guys know David Mitchell. He wrote like the big thing. You know, he he did um, Cloud Atlas, but yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's written a lot of stuff. He wrote um, the last. He's done some stuff with the Wachowskis. Wrote uh, Matrix Revolutions and mm-hmm. Revolutions Resurrections. Um, anyway, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite novelists. He wrote this book called The Bone Clocks, and the last chunk of that is set in kind of a time like this. It's set in Ireland, maybe a year or so after this. It's when climate is re- climate change is really, really just fucked up civilization and things still exist, but people are like killing each other over solar panels and just all, all kinds of stuff. And it's, it is this slowdown. It's this bleakness. It's this, you know, the things that we had, we remember, but we don't have them anymore. And we're just, we're not murdering each other unless we have no other choice, but it's just a, a very, very, very different way of life. And I, and he writes it incredibly well. And this felt like it was in that same continuity, like this, the version we see in Life of Chuck was going to turn into that in however much time. Um, but and then I just I something about the idea that we all it, it is deeply meaningful when all of us die, not to the people outside us, but to the to our internal life, too. Something really, really powerful is being lost that right. no one is ever going to know but us. And no one ever really can know it. Even people, when we try to put it on the page or to create something, it's still just us. And I, uh, you know, that's the part that stuck with me. And I think it, it was all just inspired by that one line, you know, that that incredible Walt Whitman line, the multitude right. line. So yeah. I don't know. I was really impressed. What are, you're gonna you're gonna you liked uh, the the grandpa, right, Wampler? That was your favorite. No, part. I wish I I was hoping that we would all have different answers for this, but <laughs> um, it, it's the first part for me too, and it's um, it's not just you know the apocalypse scenario that's playing out i think i've talked on the show before that um the end of the world is something i think about like 
probably more than most people um and and sometimes fantasize about even like this idea of and like a full-on reset of everything and what what might bring that about what would it look like if you survived what then what you know it's just like a constant daydream that i i seem to have i find something particularly terrifying about the way that that um portion of the story resolves itself the the line about the stars disappearing from the sky is i i got goosebumps just saying that out loud it's Mm -hmm. There's something fucking so scary to me about that. Like if you looked up in the sky and saw the stars disappearing and how it cuts off while he's in the middle of telling her, telling his ex that he loves her. It's just like, nope, done. Like it's (laughs) going to happen when it was meant to happen. If you you didn't finish your sentence too bad. Like I just find that uh, really terrifying and very memorable. Like it, and it evokes this, uh, a particular nightmare I had like many years ago, I have a fear of, I developed a fear, an irrational fear of overpasses as a result <laughs> of this a nightmare I had like about 20 years ago, right? And in the nightmare, my girlfriend and I were driving on the highway and we went up an overpass and either I got sideswiped or just kept driving through the curve but blew out the fucking, you know, side of the the concrete barrier. And the car is now like plummeting at, at, you know, a great height to earth. And I remember us looking at each other in the car and having enough time to say, I love you. And then everything going black. And I woke up fucking screaming in bed next to her. (laughs) And ever since then, every time I'm on an overpass, my butthole clenches a little bit because I'm (laughs) terrified that I'm going to fucking somehow swerve off the side of this thing. It's so irrational. It's I had been driving for years at that point and had never, never had a fear of this kind of thing. And I'm not particularly frightened of heights either. Um, It's just. That's like a a thing I um, I I think about every time I'm on a highway and have to go on an overpass. So this thing about, you know, them saying that telling each other they that they or him telling her that she loves her and then going right to black, it's like. It's like a sense memory for me somehow of of that particular nightmare, which I still carry the effects of to this day. So kind of unwittingly, Stephen King wrote something that like really fucking hit me in a highly personal, highly like. I don't know, specific way, you know, I've got an overpass story, too, that Uh was not a nightmare. It actually happened to me. Uh, It Mm. was terrifying. Um, Would you like to hear it? Yes. Okay. Okay. So I was, I was walking. Uh, I was like, it, I was in, in Brooklyn, I think. And I was just like in my own world, you know, I had headphones and was just thinking about what I was thinking. And um, I'm, I was on this, like, I was on a, like a path and uh, a, a bridge went over the path and, and to either side of the path, it was like, um, like steep sides that you couldn't climb up and like fencing and stuff. So basically there was the path going toward the bridge and, and, you know, the other side, and it was steep, but you couldn't, you sort of couldn't get around it. Once you were in this path, you were headed to the bridge, under the bridge, out the other side, that was it. And so I'm walking and then all of a sudden this, there's this like huge, like, like I see motion out of the corner of my eye. And then there's big, like fucking like explosion. It it wasn't actually an explosion. What had happened is that um, a carton of milk had 
like landed on the sidewalk very close to me and had kind of exploded and splashed milk all over the place. And I was like, what the fuck? And I like, there's these, um, I look up and there's like three like middle schoolers up on the, the bridge thing. Mm. And they're like, like, you know, this is hilarious. They're laughing. They're pointing. This is the, the greatest thing in the world. And they've got more milk in their hands and they're like getting ready to whip it. And so I like, you know, book it under the bridge and the kids. So the kids are above me with their, with the milk. And if I go to, and I hear them like laughing their heads off. And if I go, so if I go back, I'm going to get pegged with the milk. If I keep going forward, I'm going to get pegged with the milk. It was terrifying. And so, you know, I mean, what am I supposed to do? I was trapped by these asshole kids and their milk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Less, less, uh, uh, terrifying for sure. It was, it was, it was terrifying. I didn't want to get like, I was, I was far from home. Imagine you're going to get, I didn't know if the, maybe the milk was rotten, you know, who knows? Yeah, could would, be. would you yeah. want to be soaked fair by enough, a bunch of enough. middle schoolers milk? <laughs> Although there is Hell nothing no. there to be fair. There is nothing more terrifying than, than children. Sometimes they're <laughs> unruly creatures and can't be reasonably. It was, it was, I, especially because it just happened completely out of nowhere. Like I, w- it was the last thing I was thinking yeah. was going to happen. Right. It was three <laughs> little pricks with their little things of milk. And anyway, um, the story resolved with me <laughs> cowardly uh, sprinting and zigzagging uh, away from the <laughs> Courageously <laughs> so they, sprinting away. Yes, exactly. Like a real, like a real tough guy because yeah. I couldn't like, get up to the bridge and I knew it. And I like, I just, you know, I was doing what they say when you're like, you know, when a sniper's trying to shoot you, you zigzag so they can't get you. Yep. And um, serpentine, so yeah. serpentine patterns. Yes. Totally. <laughs> so like bombs of milk were landing around me, but I made it out of their range. They're little kids, right? They couldn't throw that far. And I figured if I could just get past their range, I'd be okay. So um, I survived is the point. I made it through, but it, well, it we're glad an you indelible did. impression. <laughs> There, there was a uh, a thing that was happening around Austin, what, three or four years ago. You remember this, Scott? Where oh, yeah, with the rocks? Yeah, a guy was chucking, like, like big chunks rocks, of rocks right? on, on yeah. the I-35 over, over a barrier. And he ended up killing some somebody. I think he hit hit somebody in it because, you know, the cars are going 60 miles per hour underneath. Yeah, and- yeah. Yeah, hits. Yeah, and he and, but he was a serial rock thrower. I guess he he killed somebody and he kept doing. And I think they they ended up catching him. But uh, it, it was like this <laughs> guy was terrorizing I thirty five for for a bit here in Austin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, kind of shit's scary. That. But it's it's all it all speaks to the randomness of yes the of, universe of life uh, yeah. Of, of yeah. You could be. You know, I, I could be sitting here recording and fucking have a massive heart attack or I could go out to the check my mail and, you know, drunk driver hits me or, you know, I could be driving my car and a guy right. throws a rock at it. It's like or or just know. to say it again, a bunch of middle schoolers could throw milk at you or they can throw milk at you, and which is also equally as, as terrifying and dangerous. <laughs> yes, so, exactly. um, uh, um, you know, but yeah, I think that that's kind of what, you know, maybe an undercurrent that I'm picking up here from the story is just like you can you know, you can't control how you go out, you know, but you know, that's some people will then like become very religious and try to invest in the afterlife part of it. And some people don't, and they live the the best life that they can while they're here. And, you know, I've always been somebody who subscribes to the, to the latter. So it's, you know, the thing this is why I'm not afraid to fly. You know, I have a lot of friends that are afraid to fly, I, I'm not because it's out of my control. There's nothing I can I can do about it, you know. So like when I hit turbulence, I'm like, ah, it's you know, it's out of my control. I'm not sitting here worried about 
whether the pilot had two drinks before he got got on the plane or whatever. It's all out of my control. So uh, I don't know. Uh, that's just kind of how I'm wired, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Um, what do is so Mark Hamill is in this too, right? In the, yeah. in the film version. Yes. And he he's got to play. I mean, is he the teacher in the beginning or who? Does no, he he's the grandpa. Him? That's, that's what I yeah, that, that was the first thing that they announced was Mark Hamill's the grandpa and uh, uh, Tom Hiddleston's Chuck. Yeah, I I was so. Did you guys what? You must have watched Usher. The um, oh yeah, oh, yeah. right. So I was so it was so awesome to see him playing in in. If people haven't seen it, he plays like this terrifying fixer <laughs> sort of lawyer in in Usher. Um, Deadpan of, hilarious too. Yeah. yeah. Just, and, and he puts, you know, he's, he's a master of voices. So his voice is very, very distinctive and cool. And he just, he plays the kind of character that like you knew he could, but you, I don't like, I haven't seen him do anything like that. And I can't think of anything else like that. Really, He's like evil Alfred from the Chris Nolan version of Alfred, right? Where he's got this backstory. He's like, man, this, this motherfucker is like been responsible for genocides and shit in other countries, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pim, right. Albert Pim or something yeah, like yes. that. Or, um, so he, he was great. And I, I obviously I'm, you know, I have huge connections to the star Wars world and I, I, I met him once and I had a, like, it was an incredibly cool interaction. Uh, but it's neat to see him getting like, if he could do that Pim character, he can do anything. And so I'm glad that he's getting the opportunity to do other kinds of roles. And it's not mm-hmm. just voice acting because he's, He's got a real screen presence that's very impressive. Yeah, and, and this is, might be a good way to talk about because we've been we've focused a lot on on the dance stuff. We focused a lot on on the the first part, but we haven't talked a whole lot about the third act or the first act, depending on which way you're looking at it. Um, and this might be a good spot because since it's a transition into that, because since uh, Hamill plays the grandfather, it's it's such a it's even though it was none of our favorite sections when we were, we were forced to pick one. Uh, it is a very, you know, sweet and emotional section where you get this, you know, loving relationship between mm-hmm. this kid and, and his grandma and his, his grandpa. And, uh, and I, it, and a little bit of mystery with the couple of, and the couple of, yeah, because you, couple. it's not, it's not told. You don't know until the very end of the story. Right what what the it happens in there we just know that it's a locked door that his grandfather holds the key and will not let his, his his grandson up and when he's pressed on it he says it's haunted right um and uh, so this whole time you know the kids going to school you know going to school dances learning to dance and like doing all this all other stuff but like this mystery of what's in the cupola is uh uh, and by the way, like a couple of being a not New Englander person, it, I had to actually look up what that was. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like the, the little room that has like the rounded tower on the outside of, of a lot of those Victorian houses mm-hmm. that have a it's like a little rounded tower room with the with a window out. Right. Kind of usually up top of the house. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so you don't know what's up there. And then, you know, at, at a certain point, like. I don't remember. The grandfather gets drunk. I think is, is how it plays in the in the story. And the grandfather gets drunk and kind of reveals that he had seen, uh, like the neighborhood kid who got hit by a car or something. You know, and he saw him, you know, dead up there. And and then he sees something that uh, that he refuses to talk about. And he's pale white and whatever. And and uh, and it turns out he had seen his wife's death. Right, the, the grandmother's death. Um, and 
Uh, and so that's why he's just like, you can't, you can't go up there. You can't look at it. It's a cursed room essentially. And then when, uh, eventually Chuck, you know, a teenage Chuck goes up and, and scopes out the room. He goes, wait a minute. It's just a, a dusty room. It's beautiful. And, and like he thought, like the view must be great from it. And it's a beautiful view. And then he, you know, he takes a step in and then he sees the himself dying in the hospital bed. Um, so that, that's how, how it plays out. But it's, it's, it's actually the, the core of that story is that relationship with young Chuck and his grandparents. And, uh, and that's where Stephen King, you know, is the best. It's like, you have this haunted thing in the background, right? Oh, they're, they're in a house with a old haunted room in it. Uh, but it really is about the characters and their interactions with each other and, and just how sweet they are to each other. And, you know, which becomes melancholy, you know, in this moment, because you're seeing somebody who, you know, is, you know, dead and died, you know, an act ago. Right. And you're seeing them as a kid and, you know, seeing, seeing the, the people that he loved and, and, uh, how they loved him back. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty beautiful little, yeah. Little coda for it. It felt like, again, the very, the most kind of Stephen Kingy in a way, like yeah. this is a gear that I've seen. I think we've all seen him work in a lot. Uh, the, the sort of, you know, family zone kind of kid growing up situation with the supernatural thing hovering in the background. And it was, it's, you know, flawlessly executed because he knows how to do this really well. Um, I, uh, I, I don't, I just think it doesn't, you know, it's great. It's it, like all three acts. It's a really good short story on its own, but it doesn't really have the oomph to it without the other two. The other two right. parts are what make any of the parts really, really spectacular. Um, I think the first part stands on its own as we kind of all sort of agree, but uh but it all like the three parts together really, really add up to something um, special. But, you know, the, I was thinking about that ending, too, like when he sees himself. So the kid is I think he's 12, right, because he's in middle school. He's around 12 and thereabouts. Uh, yeah. And he sees he sees basically a 40 year old version of himself dying in a, in a hospital bed who is. And, and you know, when when somebody's dying of cancer, they they don't look like themselves anymore. They look like, you know, withered shells. So like. Would he, I wonder if he would actually be like, oh, that's me. Maybe he just like, yeah, he, well, he knows it's him because, uh, he, in the, he has the, the crescent shape shaped scar oh, on his, yeah, his yeah, hand. Right? Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. That's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, that's a detail. That's good stuff. Yep. Um, yep. De- definitely. Uh, you know, cause it's, it, I, you know, I don't know what, you know, it's hard. I've never been really great at being like, this is what that story's about. And, you know, feeling very smart about myself there, but it, it really does feel like it's just about embracing, our mortality. Like we all, whether or not we die young or old, like we all know we're going to die. And it's just, what do you do in that, in the time that you have here? So, you know, I don't know. There's something beautiful about that, that but also that something idea that in the idea that when someone dies, it's not just a life that's ending. It's an interior life. You right. Know? And, exactly. And exactly. how, how that only makes death more profound. You know, too, like it also now that like this is I this has been my favorite of the three times we've talked because this like we're <laughs> unlocking this in a way that it kind of wasn't mm-hmm. it, a lot of this was there. But like new stuff is coming to mind as we're talking about it, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I you know what you just said, like, no, like the interior life that nobody knows. Right. Yeah. Nobody's interior life is identical. Every life is different. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about the second story, no one but Chuck would have done that. No right. one but this particular individual would have done those things in that situation. I wouldn't have, you you guys wouldn't have, none of us would, but this person did. And that is why the destruction of that life is meaningful and important. Yes. Um, like that, I, I have, I've always kind of bounced again, why is that second section there? And I think that 
is why I think it's there. Like this mm. is the thing that this person's this person could do and nobody else could do, mm. um, which is really which is really cool. It's really yeah. good. Yeah, I can't believe story. this this story didn't just blow me away the first time I fucking read it. Because <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I talk to to people about it, and the more you know, just all of that. You know, the more time I sit with it, it's uh, it really reveals itself to be. Uh, a substantial piece of work from King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and fucking Flanagan knew it right away because <laughs> that's he it, did. and he, and he's 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 talked about it. It's funny because they. I remember our reaction. It, it it made so little impact that we didn't remember it. But when we did our Bangor event, uh, he actually said up on up on stage, somebody asked him like, "What would you do, Stephen King?" So he's like, "Well, Dark Tower, of course." And this is before he. He announced that he had the rights and whatnot. That sneaky motherfucker. Um, he's a dark tower, of course, but he's also like, I think I could make a hell of a life of Chuck. And I remember at the time, you know, going like, oh, that's a weird one, a weird one to gravitate towards. And then like moving on. And then I had I wiped, pretty much wiped it from my memory. And it, it took the listeners reminding us that that, that were there that, that reminded us that it's like, oh, yeah, no. When when the movie was announced, he's like, yeah, fucking Mike said he he wanted to do it back in, in Bangor in, in October. Uh, well, I hope we get a, a stand by me and not like a, I don't want to shit on everybody else's movie, but there, there are, you know, versions of these adaptations that don't go as well as others. And, uh, I, I think some people like this, you don't really have a lot of the, the horror to rely on in an adaptation. Like there are scary things, but it's more of unsettling than like jump scares and stuff like that, like right. monsters. So I, I, you know, I think of like hearts in Atlantis, right. Which, stripped out all the, the dark tower stuff was just really a story about, you know, those two people, Ted Brodigan and um, I forget the kid's name, but like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I never, I'm going to count Mike Flanagan out at this point on any king. I really kind of anything he does, but uh, he's, he's just a strong filmmaker. Uh, but this one, I'm now I'm even more interested in than, than I was before. The proof will be in the pudding, obviously, but yeah, sure, uh, sure, sure. I, I, based on what we've seen and what we know, I'm pretty confident this is going to be a good one. So We'll we'll see how it all comes together, but it's uh, uh, you know I don't know if it's going to be like this is my masterpiece seminal work you know kind of thing. It could very well be the materials there. Like I, it, it all depends on how it how it comes together, I guess. But like uh, you know, Mike knows what he's doing, and and he's the, yeah, he's playing to his strengths. He's strength yeah. really big in this in this story in particular. So agreed. So, uh, this is usually the part in the program where we invite our guests to tell us what they're working on, what's coming out next, where people can find them. It is, as always, self-promo corner time. And uh, we're going to have to get into that because we have another recording on deck. Oh, so, yeah. Charles, what's uh, what do you got? What do you got? Uh, in the well, works? I, there's a there's a ton of stuff. I mean, I'm still I'm still deep in Star Wars world. So you can find a lot of Star Wars comics with my name on them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I I wrote the first novel for the High Republic called Light of the Jedi, which kicked the whole thing off. It was a mm-hmm. big bestseller and stuff. And I am I am deep in writing the final one. So it's it's kind of like I got to do episode one and I'm, now I'm doing episode nine, <laughs> which is a, a dubious uh, honor. Your book uh, ending. Your book ending. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm I'm excited that they asked me to, to come back and it's a it's a responsibility to kind of lay it down properly, but I'm gonna I'm gonna get it right, I hope. Um, so I'm doing that, um, working on more creator-owned comics. I've been recording an album, which is bad but kind of fun, and oh. um, okay. you know just sort of like planning the next the next year. Like it's it's in one of those rare months where I'm not desperately chasing deadlines and I'm just kind of thinking about the stuff I want to create in 24 and 25. Um, 
So you, I, I guarantee I will be asking you guys to come back on in six to eight months to talk about whatever the new thing is. But now <laughs> Absolutely. It's, cool. it's like shockingly, for me, it's, it's mellow. I'm only doing like seven things at once. <laughs> nice. Well, well, we thank you for coming back and, and tackling this uh, particular story with us. This was a, a really great conversation, and uh, we're looking forward to having you back again somewhere up the road. Awesome. Thanks so much. This was a really good one. Take care, guys. Many thanks to Charles Soul, and maybe some apologies to Mike Flanagan I, if we overstepped on uh, revealing uh, uh, a little bit too much of what we know. I think we did a pretty good job of... Uh, of I don't think we said anything too specific. There's nothing Mike hasn't said anyway about, uh, uh, you know, just how close to the source material he's he's staying. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we'll be all right. And, um, you know, if not, I'm sure we'll hear about it. <laughs> I hope not. But, uh, you know, but thanks again to Charles for coming on. We've uh, we always love having him on. Smart yes. dude. Fun, fun guy to talk uh, King stuff with. And uh, I'm glad we paired him with with this title. Fuck yeah, and we got it uh, ahead of the movie when yeah. everybody, all all you people who haven't read it, who now now you can listen to our show and we talked so much in depth about it that you can uh, you can pretend like you have. So so you're welcome. I think is what I'm saying. Easy peasy. All right. So next week on the main feed, we have an interesting episode, a slightly format breaking episode, but uh, uh, but not really. It's still us kind of doing the same thing. You want to fill fill everybody in on what's going on next week? Yeah, we asked our uh, our buddy Dave Schilling, who's been on the show uh, a few times now. You'll probably most re- long-time KingCast listeners will probably most remember him from his uh, first appearance on the show where he tackled Thinner. And we, all three of us, just spent about, I think, 45 minutes of that episode saying Thinner to each other on the air. Uh, we love Dave. Uh, he hadn't been on the show in a while. And we had invited him back, and we we told him that, you know, this year we're we're monkeying around with the format a little bit so we can we can uh we can do something a little outside the box did he have any ideas for that and um neither one of us did it first but we kind of went off in our separate corners to see what we came up with and then pretty quick uh dave came back and pitched the idea of us discussing a draft of a feature film version of the stand that was written in do you remember what the date was? It was like 89 or 90. Yeah. It was late, late 80s. Yeah. yeah um, late 80s uh, by Rospo Pallenberg. Um, uh, this is a real screenwriter, by the way. This isn't us yes. uh, monkeying around and and uh, we're, we're not pulling a, a fast one. This isn't a Christmas Mangler situation. Yeah, Rospo nor Pallenberg. a Ben Mickler episode. This is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a script no. that you can find if you know where to look. Um, yeah. He, and he, it is, he, he was Borman's screenwriter for people who want to know. He wrote Excalibur and a bunch to john borman yes uh, exorcist to the heretic uh so so just a quick preview though like do you think uh like should people expect us to be uh, lavishing praise on this uh unmade stand script i don't think so um <laughs> as it turns out uh jamming a thousand pages of con uh, of uh oh, we mustn't say content yes yeah uh, you, you, a, you, a thousand you pages of narrative Yep. into uh, like a 130, 140-page script, if I remember correctly, um, didn't work out very well. And, uh, well, we we really went to town on this thing. We didn't know what to expect when, when we opened it. For all we knew, it was going to be great. Some unmade draft of a movie, and we would, we would be on the air talking about what a what a, a travesty it was, that, it, that this was taken from us. No, no, no. 
Um, <laughs> this is this is a version of the stand that you absolutely did not want to see, uh, even more so than the miniseries version that came out a couple of years ago. And um, I think you will be very entertained by the conversation that we're we're going to have about this. And we pretty much walk through uh, more or less the entire script um, and just beating it up along the way. It's it's awful, guys. There's no <laughs> getting around it. Um, yeah, it's got wanna... all kinds of problems. It's got it's got structural problems. It's got fucking <laughs> character problems, know, misogynistic yeah. problems. It's got you name it. It's got it. And uh, yeah. we'll. We'll be walking you through uh, the version of the stand that you narrowly avoided uh, next Wednesday on the show. Look forward to that, please. Mm, yeah, it's it's a wild one, that one. Um, and on this Friday on our Patreon, uh, which is at patreon.com slash the Kingcast, by the way, go sign up. We are returning once again to Shelbyville, episode six of our long running uh, actual play podcast. Uh, it's in, uh, based on a Stephen King ish world that we have uh, created with, mm-hmm. uh, and by we, I mean me, Mr. Scott Wampler, who you're also listening to right now, Miss Mallory O'Mara, and our uh, game master, Jacob Hall, uh, have been running this for. God, it, it feels like years at this point because I think it is. It's been what two years of, of Shelbyville yep. for us. Yeah, so we've uh, we're now on episode six, and uh, things are getting real. So, uh, um, if you're a Shelbyville fan, or if you've always heard about it and wanted to dive in, feel free to head on over to Patreon.com/slash/The Kingcast and sign up. You will get Shelbyville episodes. You'll get a bunch of uh, bonus episodes. We get uh, uh, a bonus episode every Friday. So, if you uh, are only listening to the main feed, you're only getting half the show. So, make sure to head on over. We definitely appreciate the support, and we have some really fun stuff and and uh, Shelbyville fans in particular are going to kind of lose their minds over the back half of this uh, season that we recorded. So. Yeah, we're just about at the halfway point. I mean, there's 13 episodes. This is episode 6, so it's not quite halfway, but almost halfway. Just about. Yeah. And um yeah, it's uh things are going to get darker in the back half of the season, I think it's it's fair to say and uh much more complicated. So if you haven't been listening, um, go get signed up, get caught up now. It's a hell of a lot of fun, and uh, you're really going to like where this is going. Trust me. Hell yeah. All right. So I guess we'll see everybody in the main feed next week for Mr. Dave Schilling talking about one Rosbo Pallenberg's The Stand, Unmade The Stand from the late 80s. Uh, and then uh, this Friday on our Patreon episode six of Shelbyville. See you then, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. 